Today's episode was made possible by a generous donation from St. Paul's Episcopal Church located in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. This also happens to be my church. Thank you for all your support. If you are interested in supporting and also with you, send us an email at aawypod at gmail.com. Thanks. Hey, Laura. Hey, Lizzie. The Lord be with you. And also with you. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, I'm the Reverend Lizzie McManus-Dale. And I'm the Reverend Laura DePampolo. And welcome to And Also With You. A new podcast on reclaiming an ancient Christian faith for modern Christian life. Well, welcome to an Also With You. We have a very, very special episode today for the great high holy day of Halloween. <laughs> so to start off, before we dive into like all the things I want to know, because we have a special guest with us here today, Dr. Sarah Mizgen. Laura and Sarah, what is the greatest Halloween costume, your most favorite Halloween costume that you've ever had? And I'll go first to give you a second to think about it because I was thinking about this this morning. When I was eight years old, I was Neil Armstrong and my dad helped me cut up a basketball to be my like helmet. So there was like a window for my face and like we put it over my head and we spray painted it. Did you have pictures? I'm going to have to find some. I'll have to share some on the gram because yeah, like, yes. pictures. Oh my gosh. We went to thrift stores. There was this amazing thrift store in Chapel Hill where I grew up called Time After Time, RIP. It's been gone for like 20 years, <laughs> but they had this like bin of patches. And so we got actually all these like NASA patches and we sewed them onto a puffy white jacket. And like, it was cereal boxes, my like, you know, oxygen tank. It was unreal. Never topped it. Okay. Well, then I'm going to answer next because mine's kind of related. So this year I am going as a NASA astronaut. Luke is also Stop. going as a NASA <laughs> astronaut. And Lucy is going as an alien. Oh, my God. <laughs> and our pug, Gus, also has an alien costume, but it upsets him. So I think <laughs> I'm also turning her stroller into a rocket ship. So, <gasps> project. So I think this year is going to be my favorite year. How about yeah. you, Sarah? Do you have a favorite? Yes. Costume? I think my favorite was there was the year that my wife and I, now wife and I, were getting really flirty with each other. It was a real will they or won't they situation. Oh, I love. And she threw a Halloween party basically as an excuse to invite me over. <laughs> that is true love. I'm glad you married this woman. Yes. <laughs> But then I was going and I was like, I need to impress her with my costume. So I went as the ancient Greek poet Sappho. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I crafted papyrus like fragments of like Sappho's love poem fragments and brought them to like recite. But I did it in ancient Greek, which no one there. And my current wife, like, I love her deal. Like, my wife, she does not know Greek, but I was like, this is the thing. I, like, came with my papyrus fragments, and I was reciting her love poems all night in a language that she did not understand. But it and worked. now we're married. Yeah. So, you know. Wow. All of these stories are 10 out of 10. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Well, I know that all of us love Halloween, but... Laura, you especially love Halloween, and it's controversial in some Christian spheres. So tell us why you as a priest and also you as a person love this day of Halloween. I love Halloween so much. Halloween is 
is my Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love it. And it is understandable that some Christians have mixed feelings about it. But I think when we look back to church history, we really see that it is actually a religious holiday. It's a, it's come to be a Christian holiday. The evening of October 31st comes right before All Saints Day, which we observe on November 1st, this time to remember saints that have gone on before us in the faith. And so the Episcopal Church actually has a brief liturgy for this day, and it's not terribly common that churches will do it, but it's a fun liturgy that has four scripture readings, scary scripture readings. We have <laughs> exactly, we have the Witch of Andor, which is in 1 Samuel. We have a vision found in Job. We have the Valley of the Dry Bones, which is in Ezekiel. And then we have a war in heaven, which is in Revelation. And these scriptures are used to show God working in scary situations, in strange situations, in situations of unknowing uncertainty of death and to show that God is bigger than these scary things. The book that this service is found in in the Episcopal Church notes that suitable festivities and entertainments may follow the service, and there may be a visit to a cemetery or burial place. So it, it plays into the whole Halloween theme. Halloween started as the Feast of All Hallows. Hallows is a funny word, but we actually use it a lot in the church. Think, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, aka the intro to the Lord's Prayer. Hallow simply means holy. So there were a bunch of saints' days being celebrated throughout the year, and the church decided to consolidate them into one day on November 1st to remember all of the saints that have died. This day came to be known as the Feast of All Hallows. Many feasts in our church are observed beginning the night before the actual feast. Think Christmas Eve, think the Easter Vigil. This happened with the Feast of All Hallows, too, which leads us to All Hallows Eve. And they shortened this over time, and it eventually came to be known as Halloween. And so you shared, Lizzie, how there are a lot of Christians who... This is controversial. They refuse to participate in Halloween because they believe Halloween dances with the devil, literally. It is demonic and evil and, and celebrates things that are against the Christian faith. And so you have these funny Christian adaptations of Halloween the Holy Ghost weenie roast comes to mind if you've ever heard of such a thing. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it's the Holy Ghost weenie roast. Yeah, it's when you when you eat a hot dog in Halloween. I, I mean, <laughs> I've never. In October, which just happens to be around the same time as Halloween. Yeah, Christians a are we, a weenie roast. Yeah, yeah, a Holy Ghost weenie roast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like fall parties, harvest parties, all of these just happen to take place around Halloween, but 
are definitely not Halloween because Halloween is demonic. And honestly, there are parts I agree with this interpretation. I mean, I think it's fine for Christians to celebrate Halloween, but I personally don't mess with that demonic stuff. I'm a scaredy cat. And so I don't actually enjoy being scared. I don't actually enjoy scary haunted houses or hell houses or gory decor, really, really scary costumes. Not for me. But what I do love is a 12 foot tall skeleton in someone's yard. I love carving pumpkins. I love the chance to dress up. I love the opportunity to give my neighbors candy and treats. And I love the opportunity to reflect on the fact that death is overcome with Jesus. I love the 12 foot tall skeletons because they remind me of that story I mentioned in Ezekiel, which talks about the valley of the dry bones. God brings the prophet Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones and God's very breath brings these bones to life. This is a resurrection story, one where God brings life to a place of death. This is why I love Halloween, because it gives me an opportunity to celebrate that death does not have the final word. It has no power over us because of the life we receive in Jesus. And so all these scary stories, ultimately, these things aren't so scary because we have God. And so this is why I say I'm a goth for God, girly, (laughs) because for me, it's not really about death. It's about life and overcoming death. And so in line with Halloween, we thought we would talk about this very scary topic today. Oh my goodness. Brace yourselves, buckle your seatbelts, get out a bag of candy, settle in. We are here to bring you actually, honestly, a much asked for episode, a much sought after content that we just love that we get to time it with Halloween. We are taking the highway to hell today. <laughs> Fit it in. Um, okay. So, and we literally brought an actual hellacious, no, a hell scholar uh, to share more about this, the lovely Dr. Sarah Mizkin. Welcome, Sarah. Yay! Oh my gosh. Will you share a little bit more about yourself and what brings you to this episode today? Yes. Thank you for that lovely welcome. So like Lizzie said, I'm a hell scholar. I have a PhD in religious studies from Yale University, and I did my dissertation on hell and damnation in early Christianity. So I know a lot about- That's fun at parties. I know it. Oh, it's great at parties. (laughs) At the Holy Ghost Weenie Roast. That's a great thing to pull out. Bring this dissertation to the Holy Ghost Weenie Roast. In your Sappho's costume. (laughs) Yes. All come together. So I did my dissertation on hell, and then I am also a lay Episcopalian now, but I've had a faith journey that's taken me from the Catholic Church, evangelicalism, and then I did a lot of exploring before I landed on being an Episcopalian. And so I worship at a church in Rhode Island where I live, and I'm generally involved in the church as a layperson. Awesome. So Sarah, I have to ask, how did you get on the highway to hell. <laughs> what drew you to write your dissertation and study this topic? 
That is a great question. I think the short answer is that I was always really interested in this question of eschatology, which is the fancy word for our theologies of kind of heaven, hell, and all the last things. Mm-hmm. So I came into my PhD actually thinking I was going to study heaven. Hmm. I was going to do plot heaven. twist. <laughs> yeah, real plot twist. Did I start my dissertation in May, in March 2020? I did. That's why you wrote on hell. Exactly. But I think kind of early in my PhD, I was doing some of my initial research on heaven and early Christianity. But then I started to get actually more interested and fascinating about the way some of these early Christian authors started talking about hell. In part because it was more interesting, like their descriptions of heaven were kind of where everything was static. They were like, it will just be perfect. But Mm -hmm. in hell, there was a lot more questions among early Christian authors. No one really knew what was going on there or what it was about. And so I really kind of got interested in the way that early Christians, like all of us, were taking biblical materials and were trying to figure out, is there a hell? What is it like? What does it mean? So that eventually kind of solidified into my dissertation, which is called Damned Bodies, and really looks specifically at the way that early Christians talked about the bodies of the damned in hell, kind of what those things said specifically about God. So yeah, I went from heaven to hell in the course of my PhD, maybe pandemic, maybe also being in graduate school led me on that track. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that is so fascinating. So, so fascinating. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit, I know this is a huge question, but if you could share about where the concept of hell comes from. Like, have Christians always believed in hell? That is a great and huge question. So the short answer, I would say, is that what most people think of as hell now, kind of in North America, our Christian context, is actually a smattering together of a lot of things that have become really entangled with one another. And so even looking at the Bible, the Bible doesn't actually like use the word hell or talk about a place called hell. Instead, are a lot of stories and imagery that gets taken up to talk about hell. So like, for example, in the Hebrew Bible and a lot of the Psalms, they'll talk about like this place called the pit. And the psalmist says, God, don't let me go down to the pit. Save me from it. And they also use the Hebrew Bible to talk about Sheol, which is a Hebrew word for a kind of abyss. And it seems like maybe there's a concept of the dead going there. But neither of those things really connote eternal suffering. Hmm. And then we come to Jesus's parables in the New Testament, which can use language of like outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes Jesus will say, you know, people might get sent to Gehenna, which was a real valley in the Near East at that time. There's this parable of Lazarus and the rich man where it says Lazarus is kind of in flames and he can't get out. And then Revelation that you were mentioning earlier, Laura, that's in the church's Halloween service also has some of this fire imagery. Mm. But I think it's important to note that all of like the biblical material that we have, first of all, it doesn't speak with one voice. The Bible isn't like consistently presenting 
a picture or a place like this. And a lot of the things that we now associate with hell, like fire, like punishment, like darkness, actually come from parts that are relying on kind of metaphor and imagery to communicate meaning rather than a lot of kind of like literal statements. So that's kind of my short answer. So some of it comes from, you know, we have all these biblical images that people start to put together and Mm -hmm. say, maybe they all refer to one place and maybe we can call that hell. Mm -hmm. But in the early church, people were doing that in conversation with a lot of like philosophy at the time. Mm -hmm. So this idea that humans have eternal souls But I think one of the things that was most interesting to me in my dissertation research is that they're also pulling in their own understandings of what punishment is or should look like, what justice is or should look like. One of the things that really surprised me was that early on, hell gets really linked to ideas of prisons. Mm. And Christians from the beginning are using prison imagery to talk about what hell might be like. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. So, I don't know. Does that answer some of your question, Laura? You're you're blowing my mind right now. Oh my gosh. I have a follow-up question that's not in our layout. Is that okay? Yeah. Totally okay. Okay. So as Christians were connecting, like early Christians were talking about hell and prison imagery. Is there any connection with that because so many Christians were in prison? Uh, Maybe, but I think... Because some of it comes from... There is a kind of strand of this early literature about hell where Christians are kind of imagining a reversal, right? Where the people who are harming them or persecuting them ultimately will be the ones who are harmed and persecuted. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. like what a lot of this hell and apocalyptic literature presents is people kind of working out a reversal saying like, now I'm imprisoned, but soon it will be you and God will imprison you. It's Mm -hmm. like God is on my side sort of thing. So I think some of that happens really early on when Christians are persecuted, but even after Christians gain power, it stays. And then it kind of becomes, we are just an imprisoning and torturing people because this is what God does on a larger scale. So it kind of depends on who's in power at the time. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And honestly, it's kind of what we see happening with discussion about hell today, you see the parallels. We've been doing this for a long time, apparently, in our church. Can you talk a little bit about some of the historical understandings, and I know, again, a huge question of hell, like how have we decided who goes there, who doesn't go there, all of that, those sorts of conversations? How have people wrestled with that over time? Hmm. I love the way you asked that, Laura, because it really is a wrestling over time. Mm. I think people don't always realize that this question of hell has never been universally settled Mm. by the church. Even from the very beginnings, people were really disagreeing with one another about what hell is and who goes there and fighting with one another about it. There's never been churchwide consensus on hell in a way that there has been on some other really important topics like Christology or the Trinity. So I think wrestling is a really good word to talk about what's happened. I think a lot of folks, particularly if you're deconstructing or even if you're in North America, are really familiar with kind of a broad vision of hell where people go there because they sin against God. 
and God needs to punish them for sinning. And then Jesus, for some people, can be kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card almost. Like Jesus died on the cross for you and you accept it. So then you kind of get, you know, a chance to not go to hell Mm -hmm. because God is merciful. And that really has been from the beginning of the church, what some people have thought about hell, Mm. kind of done that. Well, God's justice demands that we're punished for sins sort of thing. So I would guess that people are pretty familiar with that. Yeah. But there have also been really strong strands of thought in early Christianity and kind of beyond that hell is more of a temporary thing Mm. where people might go there because they're punished for their sins, but it's not permanent. It's more of a chance to be punished and in some ways to be refined. The imagery of fire is used there, but often it's more of a refining fire rather than a punishing fire. So there's that perspective And eventually that kind of starts to develop into what's called the doctrine of purgatory, which is a pretty common Catholic belief. Heck yes. I remember learning about that for Halloween as a Catholic kid. (laughs) Yeah. Where it's this idea that some people go to kind of purgatory to be purged from their sins, but eventually enter heaven. But that was really common in the early church. How does that thought come about in the early church for purgatory? Because it's a pretty, I know we often think of it as a Catholic teaching, but I think it's pretty common. Yeah. I think it comes out from this wrestling, you know, as folks are thinking about, okay, well, how does God justly punish humans Mm -hmm. forever for sins that they've committed in their lives? You know, it can take a few seconds to sin is a really common trope. Um, Where like it takes you a few seconds to sin, but it lands you forever in hell. Mm. And from the beginning, people have been like, well, that doesn't seem quite right with God being perfectly just. That -hmm. doesn't seem like perfect justice. Mm. So I think that wrestling comes out. But then there were also texts, like one of the ones in my dissertation was called The Apocalypse of Peter, which was really popular in early Christianity and some of the early canon lists include it. So at least for some early Christians was held as scripture. And in that the apostle Peter goes on a tour of hell. And at one point Jesus says to him, you know, I will release people from hell and allow them to enter heaven and I will redeem them from this punishment. So really early on, Christians were seeing this idea and saying, like, that sounds more like God to me Mm. and what I know of God's mercy and God's justice and God's love than God punishing people forever. That makes a lot of sense. And then I guess maybe one more historical way of understanding. Oh, please. Yes. Okay, good. Would be what's called universalism, this idea that eventually all people and all things are reconciled to God. And so hell is empty. And there's actually a lot of Christians really thinking that in early Christianity, all the way up into the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, it's a pretty popular and significant strand of the church's thinking about hell that at least I didn't hear at all about growing up. So we have Christians who say like, no, because God is all powerful and because God is merciful, Eventually, God will reconcile all things to God's self. That might involve some kind of purging. We will all need to learn how to live into God's grace fully with God's help. But this is a really 
I would say, common and it's a really strong intellectual tradition in Christianity to believe that hell is empty. I have another follow-up question, actually two follow-up questions. So do you have any thoughts on the line in the Apostles' Creed that in most churches today we say Jesus descended to the dead, but if you do write one, aka the more traditional Elizabethan language, you say descended into hell, which I actually personally prefer because it's like there's nowhere that God does not go. And I think to uh, – and as a kid, I was always like descended into hell, <laughs> bad word in church, just like, you know, the ox and ass at Christmas time. <laughs> But like, do you have any thoughts on that in the creed and how this connects to a theology of universalism? And if I'm putting you on the spot, feel free to pass. <laughs> no, that's a great question. I think a lot of people interpret it in the way you just said, Lizzie, that there's nowhere that God does not go in order to be with humanity. Kind of seeing that Jesus's death on the cross and then descent into hell is really an extension of the incarnation in which God comes to humanity to be with us and then extends it to go and be with the dead. And in a lot of traditions, again, I can speak for early Christianity because that's what I'm an expert in. It is that Jesus kind of harrows hell, which is language I love. So So metal, but Jesus goes and conquers hell and brings the dead with him as he comes to resurrection. So, yeah. So beautiful. Oh, my gosh. I think that's just gorgeous. And it connects to, I remember being taught, and I I don't know if this is correctly attributed, so I'm going to ask you a hell scholar. Was it C.S. Lewis who said hell is locked, but the key, it's locked from the inside? Is that screw tape letters? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like if there is... I guess that's kind of a universalism, probably not fully of like if there are people there, they're choosing to be there, which like... I don't know if that's true for eternity, but that certainly feels true sometimes of what I've seen as a priest. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And this is one of the other big debates about hell kind of throughout the history of the church is are people in hell because they've chosen to be there through a rejection of God's love, through a rejection of God's kind of saving action in Jesus Christ, or are people in hell, and this is like a, Calvinist view are people in hell because God put them there. Mm. So that's a debate that Christians had. I think personally, I lean more towards if people are in hell, it is kind of that locked from the inside. It is because of removal of self from loving community with God and others. So I think that's what I'd say about that. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. So my next question, because I do feel, and I want to name that I, I feel more able to ask questions without a lot of like emotion around hell because I did not grow up in a tradition that was like turn or burn. But I realize a lot of our listeners did, and I know that y'all have had experience with that, and certainly my spouse <laughs> talks about being baptized because the power team came to his church and ripped books in half, and then we're like, if you died tonight, where would you go? And he was like, I want to be with my mom and dad. I don't want to go to hell. So, <laughs> so I recognize this is that's a real thing. And and hell has been utilized as a weapon. It's been utilized to scare people, to manipulate people, to control people, to say, if you act this way, if you have this quote unquote lifestyle, then you will go to hell. And so what would you say 
from your expertise, but also from your life of faith. What would you say to people who come from backgrounds where hell has been used as a weapon against them? Yeah, I love this question. I think one of the things I would say is that you're not alone if hell has been used as a weapon against you. And this is something that happens, you know, in the history of church. As soon as Christians get power, some of them start using hell in that way. That doesn't make it less painful, I know. But I think for me, in thinking about my own experiences of hell being used against me, it helped me to see that that was actually situated in larger historical patterns and that I wasn't the only one who had that experience. It kind of took the teeth out of it for me in some ways wow. to see that yeah. like people weren't uniquely like, oh, you're going to hell because of something you are, but because they often want the power that comes from scaring people or to get you in line. So I think that's what I would say, I guess, from my connection to it. I was also, one of my like formative evangelical experiences was I was like in the depth of my evangelicalism when Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, came out. Ooh, yeah. That was a big one. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's another step on my highway to hell that I'm not re only realized now. Rob Bell paved the highway to hell for you. But I think there was, at least in a lot of the circles I was in, a real like anxiety that if Rob Bell even suggested a sort of universalism, it was like evidence that he was going to like lead people to damnation. And I think that's also not true. So many of the people that we, at least in the Episcopal Church, consider saints disagreed with one another about what hell is very profoundly. Like we hold Gregory of Nyssa, who was explicitly a universalist, to be a saint. At the same time, we hold Augustine to be a saint, who is very much not a universalist. And I think for me, one of the things that's helped me kind of lessen the role of hell in my imagination is to realize that I don't have to be right or wrong about it, that that's not what makes one holy or a good Christian or a follower of Jesus. And so I guess that's also what I'd say. But I'm curious what you think, Laura, because I know you've had similar experiences to me. Yes. I know some of our listeners grew up in a context where around the time of the Holy Ghost weenie roast, not Halloween, they, <laughs> they would have hell houses emerge these are haunted houses or scary places, but the scariness of them is a reenactment of hell or, you know, what we imagine hell is like. And that is all used as a tool to scare people into belief. And that's a really extreme example of what some people do. But I find it helpful for this discussion because it uses fear to motivate people to believe in God. And when I was evangelical and more aligned with, with some of these teachings that we've talked about. For me, fear was what was motivating me to share God with other people. I did not want my friends to go to hell. And my church told me it was my responsibility to make sure that they didn't go there. And so there was a real sense of urgency behind converting people and, and, and sharing my faith. 
that I just don't really relate with anymore. We've talked about this turn or burn theology, turn your heart and life to God or else you will burn forever. And as I've come to understand scripture and and the teachings of Jesus over time, I've really come to focus on the love of God as the motivating factor for why I want to share God with other people. We talked about this in our evangelical episode, and Sarah, you touched on it as well. For me, knowing God is about knowing love. I have no clue what happens when we die. I haven't died yet. (laughs) But when I read scripture over and over again, I am reading about this God that will go anywhere for us, like like you were talking about earlier, Lizzie. This God whose love knows no bounds, no limitations. And for me, it was a pretty big shift. And honestly, I remember when Rob Bell's book came out, I was a huge Rob Bell fan. And it was so controversial. And I, I read all the books that came out by the other big authors at that time, no need to name them, but there were several responses that came out because people were scared. Like if Rob Bell was talking about universalism, it's a it's a slippery slope, <laughs> you know? And so there's this real fear and that's just it. It's fear that motivates these conversations about hell. And when I read scripture, I just don't read Jesus being afraid of things, that's not motivating. That's just not good marketing 101, okay? You can't scare people into loving you. And if you are, I don't think they're actually loving you. I don't think that's really what drives this. But for me, when I started to move away from a theology that really believed in hell and people going there if they didn't believe in God, I will be honest it was terrifying. It felt like I was taking a step away from the foundation because I was the foundation of fear. And so when people start to challenge some of these beliefs, you really do feel like the world is crumbling and it's really, really scary. Laura, as you were speaking, a verse of scripture came to mind for me and that is perfect love casts out fear. Mm. And I feel like the perfect love of God not only descends into hell and takes back every key, which is actually to quote a popular evangelical song that we actually sing at Jubilee. So the song Ain't No Grave talks about Jesus descending and taking back every key. And I think exactly as you just said, like that's you don't really love someone if you're terrified. And I think you can be terrified and love, like, because love involves risk, right? Like I think about giving birth or getting married. like You don't know every single thing that's going to unfold in your life together, but that's not manipulative fear. Yeah. And I think the way – I don't think about hell that much now, even though I'm a hell expert. I think in my life of faith, I don't think about it that much day to day. But I think it's been more helpful for me as someone who comes from traditions – where hell is used as a dividing line between people, you're in or you're out, you're saved or you're not, you're good with God or you're not, to see instead the line between those things that bring us close to God and push us away from God is not so much between people, but is inside each one of us. 
So there are things in me, in my life that bring me further from God that I think God rejects or says no to. But then there are also things in me that God, that bring me closer to God and whatnot. So instead of seeing kind of the division that God does or the sorting of everyone into heaven and hell as, you know, something between people, I see it more now as something that happens, you know, in our process of sanctification with God Mm -hmm. in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think hell being used as a weapon or litmus test for, you know, who's in, who's out. It's not the way to build a strong faith. I think that's why so many people, our listeners included, find the need to deconstruct, so to speak, to to move away from that type of faith. I think, uh, speaking for myself, I deconstructed and I knew I was still drawn to God. I was still drawn to God's love. But for me, I needed to approach God in a new way. And so I think there's this desire a lot of us have to move away from a theology that overemphasizes hell. I so relate with what you said, Sarah. I used to think about hell every day (laughs) growing up when I was evangelical. Like, truly, I did. And now, I don't know the last time I thought about hell. It just doesn't have a large part of my life of faith anymore. And what a beautiful gift to give to your sweet little alien baby. (laughs) Thinking about Halloween. But like, Sarah, I just really appreciate what you said about the sanctification work of being ongoing, because I think a lot of the parables in particular of Jesus, which we talked about this in our Bible episode, and Laura really beautifully talked about the parables being like deliberately confusing, and they don't actually have this like clear here's the good guy, here's the bad guy, here's the answer. They're not Aesop's fables, right? There's not a sort of one-to-one morality lesson. But I think a lot of our imagining around hell, as you talked about, comes from these parables or comes from, I think, also implicitly images that John the Baptist talks about, you know, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. He has his winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. But a few years ago, I did some digging into what chaff is because I am not a farmer and most of us do not spend a lot of time with wheat. (laughs) You know, and uh, the thing is, is chaff is like a husk that protects the germ, the seed of wheat. It's something that is needed in its vulnerable and tender place to grow. But then eventually, if that armor stays there, the wheat will never grow. It will never like, you know, this is where I'm starting to punch above my weight biology wise, but it'll never like germinate. It'll never turn into be turned into bread. <laughs> the scientists are laughing. But sometimes there are things that like, I think about that beautiful hymn, How Firm a Foundation, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine is a lyric in that hymn. And dross there is like one of those great old English words that means like rubbish or trash or like, you know, and trash is something that was useful once. It was a wrapper around a piece of Halloween candy, and it kept that Halloween candy safe from all the grubby hands (laughs) that were trick-or-treating, right? Like, there are things that do need to be burned away. And I think a reality of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not necessarily to be motivated by fear, but to know that, like, to follow God is to know that there are things that drive us away from God that are going to be burned from us if we're open to it. And that process is painful, but just like going to a good therapy session or admitting when we're wrong or saying, hey, this is a boundary, like you hurt my feelings. Like it's a good hurt. It's a hurt that helps us grow. And that's a totally different thing than (laughs) eternal damnation. And 
just to offer, because I know we have some parents listening of like, okay, great. How do I talk to my kids about heaven and hell if I don't want to teach them about hell? When I was in seventh grade, my dad was driving me to jazz band practice before school. (laughs) So it was like seven in the morning. I'll never forget. And I had a lot of friends who were not Christian. And I was very worried about them because my youth group had started really going hard on hell. And that was not something that my family taught. And honestly, not something in my experience of Catholicism. We taught, we learned a lot about purgatory, but purgatory never really scared me because I was like, great, it's only temporary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, daddy, like, what happens to, you know, my friends who are Hindu, like, what's going to happen to them? Like, I'm so worried. And my father is from the Bronx and he's well over six feet tall and is a very smart man who can also be very direct. <laughs> and he was like, honey, God's a smart guy. He's going to figure that out. You don't got to do that yourself. (laughs) And I just like, it was a moment of like, oof, oh, okay. That's like, I don't need to carry that anymore. And and honestly, even now, three degrees later down the line, I think about that when people ask me big questions. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like that's God's to figure out, not mine. And so with all of that in mind, Sarah, I'm curious, what keeps you hopeful? as someone who has spent so much time on the highway to hell? I think what keeps me hopeful is really summed up in a prayer from the BCP. It's one of the first prayers I ever found in the BCP. And it's one of the ones in the back. It's titled, For Those We Love. And it just says, Almighty God, we entrust all who are dear to us to your never-failing care and love for this life and the life to come, knowing that you are doing for them better things that we can desire or pray for through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And I think that's what keeps me hopeful, that trust in God and God's love, that even to death, even for my friends who have died, God still loves them and God's love is still doing more for them and better things for them than I could even imagine or desire. So I think that hope and that trust in God is really what keeps me hopeful, both for my friends and family now, for those who have died. And I'd also say for the church, that God is doing greater things for the church than we could imagine, desire, or even know how to ask for right now. So beautiful. What a beautiful prayer. BCP has some good stuff in there. It does. Well, this episode has me so excited for Halloween. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes! We need to definitely share pictures of all of these Halloween costumes. Sarah, you're definitely going to have to send one to us of oh, Safas. For <laughs> yeah. sure. People need to see this epic costume. I hope this conversation has been a blessing for our listeners. It's certainly blessed me in learning more about hell's history and hell throughout Christian belief and hell in a more modern context, the one that we find ourselves in today. It is a huge topic. You would know better than us, Sarah, <laughs> having, having been a hell scholar, but even just the small little glimpse into the topic, into hell, has helped me in my own faith. So so thank you so much for being here and talking with us today. Oh, thank you both for having me. My gosh, it's been such a treat. Not a trick, but a treat. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lizzie, Sarah, the Lord be with you. And, and also, also with, with you. you. <laughs>